Section 23 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 23. Confession Divinely Instituted. Objection. It is not in the power of the Creator to forgive offenses committed against the Creator. Hence confession, in which the priest presumes to pardon sins, cannot be of divine institution. The Answer The power of absolving sins was conferred by Christ on the apostles and on their successors in the priesthood. This doctrine is based on Scripture, and both the doctrine and the practice are as old as the Church of God. The doctrine and the practice of the Reformers were a new novelty when first introduced, and that fact alone should awaken deep reflection in every sincere and open-minded adherent of the Reform. Novelties in religion are always to be suspected, and as regards in the religion of Christ, novelties in doctrine are necessarily errors when condemned as such by the teaching authority of a church which received so many promises of divine aid. Luther, it is true, retained confession in his new system of religion, but repudiated the pardoning power of the priest. His denial of this power was an innovation, was condemned by the Church, and, as we shall see, was contrary to the plain and obvious meaning of the very words on which Luther based any doctrine on confession. In these words, our Lord plainly tells His apostles that they have the power to forgive sins, and Luther had no warrant for destroying the literal and obvious meaning of the words, especially on the inspiration of his own private and personal experiences. For after all, were not Luther's personal experiences, his Heilserfahrungen, as they have been styled, the origin of the new doctrines? See Justification. A direct proof of the Catholic doctrine on the remission of sins is found in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, verses 21 through 23 where the evangelist is narrating a vision of our Lord after the resurrection. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Still simpler powers, including the remission of sins, are conferred by the following words, Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Amen, I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind upon earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose upon earth shall be loosed also in heaven. The first of these passages furnishes a demonstration of the principal points of the Catholic doctrine. This we shall endeavor to show in the following comments. 1. Whose sins you shall forgive. The word forgive can have but one meaning, and the meaning should be obvious. The word cannot mean, as the Lutherians maintain it does, merely to declare that the sinner is forgiven in heaven, in virtue of his renewing the faith of his baptism. When we say that a person forgives, we do not mean that he declares that someone else forgives. The act is his own. In the present tense, it is true, the act of forgiveness on earth must be ratified by an act of forgiveness in heaven. But that is guaranteed by the promise and institution of Christ. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, which is equivalent to saying, the sins forgiven by you are in very truth forgiven, because they are at the same time forgiven by God. In other words, God graciously regards the act of His minister and representative 
as though it were his own. The word forgive, moreover, must have the same meaning in the two clauses of the sentence, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. And as true forgiveness is meant in the second clause, it must be meant in the first. But in so far as the forgiveness is the act of God's minister, it derives all of its efficacy from divine institution and divine ratification. Most Protestants are turned from the Catholic doctrine on confession by the strong repugnance they feel to the idea of a man's wielding powers which can only belong to God. But they should remember that the power to forgive sins is only a delegated power. The confessor really and truly forgives sins, but always in the name of God. This appears in the very formula of absolution pronounced by the priest in the confessional. I absolve thee of thy sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It is not in his own name or by his own underived authority that he absolves, but in the name and by the authority of God. He absolves in virtue of a commission received from God. Just as a king might commission a high officer of his realm to pardon outlaws whenever he found the offenders repentant and ready to make satisfaction for their crimes, so God can appoint the priests of his church to dispense his mercies to sinners when they are found to be in good dispositions. It cannot be denied that God can delegate one of his creatures to extend pardon in his name to his fellow creatures. His absolute power to do so is not repugnant to our Christian idea of God and his attributes. The absolving power does not raise man to a level with God, since man absolves only in virtue of a commission from God. It does not make man the absolute judge of the dispositions of his fellow men, for God alone knows the heart. But it does empower him, when he sees the ordinary signs of contrition in the penitent, to dispense the grace which God has attached to the sacrament. In this, as in other matters, he is one of the dispensers of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. If the sinner who confesses does not truly repent for his sins, the absolution of the priest is not ratified in heaven. The wisdom of God in bestowing such power on his priests is manifest in the results produced by its exercise and in a way in which it responds to the cravings of the human heart. The effects of confession have been acknowledged by many of our separated brethren. See Confession in the People. Not, of course, that they have any experience of such confession as practiced in the Catholic Church, but in those who have had such experience that they are aware that such effects are produced, whilst the great gap in Protestant life caused by the absence of confession is brought painfully home to them. The divine wisdom is shown in the provision made for the unburdening of the heart, especially in regard to matters which are the heart's own secrets and will not be communicated to anyone except under circumstances guaranteeing peace of mind and perfect security. It is shown also in the fact that God has associated the reconciliation of the sinner with an external rite of religion, and one, too, that bears a special stamp of divine authority. Repentance, however sincere, if locked up in the heart, cannot breed the peace and tranquility experienced by the penitent when he hears the words of absolution which fall upon his ears as though they had descended from heaven itself. The divine wisdom is manifest also in the restraint put upon the sinner by the obligation of confessing his sins. 2. The power to forgive sins extends to all sins, whose sins you shall forgive, etc. No sins are excluded, and by the force of the words, all are included. If any sins confessed with the proper dispositions could be denied forgiveness, our Lord, it must be presumed, would not have worded his solemn commission to the apostles 
in so general a form. Hence, his words cannot refer to the remission of sins in baptism and consequently only to sins committed before baptism. For a sin would be committed after baptism, that too must fall under the powers of the keys. The Church, from the earliest centuries, has taught that no sins were accepted when the general power of absolving were conferred on the Church. The Montanists of the 2nd century were condemned as heretics for maintaining that the Church had not the power of absolving from grievous sins. The Novatians of the 3rd century fell under the same ban for restricting the power of the Church as regarding grievous sins. Moreover, on this and on other essential points relating to confession, the Oriental sects agree and have always agreed with the Catholic Church, a fact which proves that in the early centuries before East and West were divided, the present Catholic doctrine was that of the Universal Church. 3. The power conferred upon the Apostles was to be transmitted to their successors in the priesthood. The immediate recipients of the power of absolving and retaining sins were the Apostles alone, for to them alone were the words of our Lord addressed. But the power conferred on the Apostles was to be perpetuated in the Church. For when our Lord, in granting His power to the Apostles, uttered the words, As the Father hath sent me, I also send you, he could not have had in mind a merely personal favor bestowed upon the apostles. The mission which Christ had received from his Father, and in virtue of which he sent forth his apostles, must bear fruit in the church to the end of time, and the powers conferred in the act of sending them forth must be perpetuated in the apostles' successors. It would seem strange indeed that our Lord should so solemnly assure his apostles that he was now executing the great mission he had received from the Father by conferring a personal privilege which was to last only during the few short years of the Apostles' lives. The mission of the Apostles was to be the mission of the Church, and as the Church was to endure to the end of the world, the powers conferred on the Apostles must be the lasting possession of the Church. We would ask that anyone who holds the power given to the Apostles was a personal and exclusive prerogative to consider the practical bearings of such a prerogative. The Twelve Apostles, let us suppose, possessed the personal privilege of absolving from sin, just as an ecclesiastic of our day may possess certain personal powers received from the Pope during a visit to Rome, powers of which his friends at home, say in America, are glad to avail themselves. A discipline of penance would thus have been established, and although the apostles could not be everywhere, many Christians, thousands no doubt, would seek to obtain the privilege of being absolved by one of the twelve. And just so far as it was a privilege, it is conceivable that God might confer upon the apostles the power to grant it. But is it likely that in so important a matter as the reconciliation of a sinner with God and his eternal salvation, some would be given the peace and security consequent upon this apostolic act and others deprived of it? But what shall we say of the alternative power of retaining or refusing to pardon, which was given the apostles together with that of pardoning? The apostles will be empowered to refuse forgiveness on seeing improper dispositions in the sinner. Is it possible that this element in the discipline of penance was to cease upon the deaths of the apostles? That the rigors of the penitential system were to be held over the heads of obstinate sinners during the lives of the apostles and then suddenly cease? How sinners would rejoice at the disappearance of this last vestige of apostolic power! How helpless would be the poor sinner who should happen to be under the apostolic ban when the last of the apostles died. 4. But the power of forgiving and retaining sins was not to be exercised without any act proceeding from the sinner. Absolution on the part of the priest supposes self-accusation, 
of course with true sorrow, on the part of the sinner. Let us not forget that the power conferred was twofold. It was not only a power of forgiveness, but also a power of retaining, i.e., refusing to forgive. If the power were only a pardoning power, it is perhaps conceivable that absolution should be granted without confession. The power of forgiving sins might be such that the priest, after exhorting one or more persons to repent in their hearts, might without more ado pronounce a formula of pardon. But the words, whose sins you shall retain, etc., change the whole nature of the case. The priests are evidently constituted judges. They are to decide whether the sinner is worthy of absolution or not. But how can they do so unless they know the state of the sinner's soul, unless they know the specific character of his offenses, the view he takes of them, his resolutions for the future, his willingness to make reparation for the harm done to the person, the character, or property of his neighbor? But all this supposes self-accusation on the part of the sinner. As regards sins committed entirely in the secrecy of the heart, it is plain that the priest can have no inkling of the state of the soul except through a confession of the sinner. 5. But confession is not only a condition for receiving absolution. It is a condition for eternal salvation in regard to grievous sins or sins that cut off one from salvation. In other words, there is a universal obligation of confessing grievous sins. This obligation is implied in the powers granted to the apostles and their successors. A little reflection should suffice to show the absurdity of a situation in which the priests of the church would be equipped with the power of binding and releasing in matters bearing on eternal salvation, while the faithful would have it in their power to evade their jurisdiction. Many would doubtless choose the easier way, and many, still held in their sins by the refusal of the priest to absolve them, could and would nullify the action of the priest at pleasure. The binding power conferred on the priests of the church would be rendered perfectly negligatory. Confession must then be an obligation for all or for none. The obligation of confessing has been inculcated and insisted upon in the church from the earliest ages. The records of the councils and the writings of the fathers abound in testimonies to that effect. Among others, St. Basil says, We must confess our sins to those who are appointed the dispensers of the divine mysteries. And St. Augustine, the great doctor of the West, writing as though he were addressing our modern reformers, says to the people of his time, Let no one among you say, I do penance in secret and before God. God who knows that I repent in my heart will forgive me. Was it said to no purpose then, Whatsoever you shall loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven? Was it to no purpose that the church received the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Testimonies of the same kind might be multiplied from St. Cyprian, St. Irenaeus, and others. It is only too evident that the Reformers, in their discussions on confession, have confined their attention to the absolving power and have shut their eyes to the binding power. The absolving power they have either diluted or reasoned away except when they have regarded it as a personal prerogative of the Apostles. The power of binding is an idea that has not fructified in their minds. It would seem to be a seed dropped in uncongenial soil, whereas in the Catholic Church, both ideas have germinated to the full in a penitential practice that has been handed down through the ages. End of section 23